0: I don't know what um, Pastor Stephen has arranged for this passage, but this is a different kind of church. We would have fog machines or something. You'll understand as we read it. Exodus 19 beginning with verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings, and a thick cloud on the mountain, and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses, he brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up in, uh, like the ma- uh, smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The loudest, uh, pardon me, the Lord came down on Mount Sinai, at the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Thank you. You may be seated.
1: Good morning, Redemption Tucson. That was everything I was hoping it was going to be with Tom reading that. My name is Stephen. I am one of the pastors here. If you are new... um, I lead a couple different things here. Sometimes I'm leading worship here on stage, sometimes coaching these folks, sometimes teaching DNA and doing a variety of things. But uh, it's always a privilege to get to preach God's Word, and I'm excited about it for a few reasons this morning. One is I feel like God has had me... um, in this text, or at least the themes of some of this text for a while, and uh, he's gotten under the hood a bit with me uh, the last year or so. And then um, secondly, this is a significant moment in the story of God, in, the, in, in redemptive history here. So it's especially a privilege to get to preach it. We're gonna be in a few different texts. So if you need a Bible, uh, if you don't have a Bible, you're gonna need one. Uh, we're gonna have people coming up uh, from the aisles to give you one of these. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, please raise your hand. Or if you don't have a Bible, please raise your hand. And one of these people in the aisle are gonna get it to you. If you just forgot your Bible, uh, leave it on the seat. One of our hospitality team members will get it on their way out. If you don't own a Bible, this is our gift to you. Um, I want to pray before we continue for, uh, for a few reasons. One, um, I, I pray that we would hear God's word rightly this morning, that we would have ears to hear and eyes to see. But then also I pray that God would give me uh, the, the right spirit to be able to preach it rightly as well. So let, let's pray as we dive in. God, I pray that you would speak through your word. Holy Spirit, as you wrote this text, would you give us eyes to see it, ears to hear it? Lord, would you use me? Uh, I'm not smart enough, influential enough, gifted enough to be able to teach us in a way that actually lasts and is helpful uh, as we leave here today, Lord. Uh, Would you use me in spite of me? Uh, Would you use the thing you've been teaching me to help us uh, here this morning? Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for this time that we can worship. Thank you for all we've heard about you and uh, from you already. It's in your name we pray. Amen. If you got a Bible, you can turn to Exodus 19. We'll be in verses 1 to 6, and those will be up on the screen. Exodus 19, starting in verse 1 through 6. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai. And they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine." And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Like I said, Exodus 19 is a turning point in the entire book of Exodus, and it's an entire turning point in the whole story of God. The book up to this point, as we've been in Exodus, has been about God's powerful saving and redeeming and rescuing and freeing of Israel from the bondage and oppression of Egypt. He bore his people on eagle's wings, as it says. And brought them to himself. This is where we've been. We're here at the foot of Mount Sinai less than three months from that event. And the story turns here in Exodus 19. At Mount Sinai, God is forming a nation and a people and turning the entire course of redemptive history. Verse 5, God is saying to Israel, I have saved you. I have called you to myself. You saw it. You experienced it. You tasted it. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That word covenant, I want to pause there and define it. One definition broadly a covenant is a chosen relationship in which two parties make binding promises to each other. This moment in Exodus 19 is the continuation of God's covenant. He made earlier with Abraham in Genesis 12, which uh, said, I will bless you to be a blessing. And from your offspring, from your family, the whole world is gonna be blessed. And now Abraham's family, hundreds of years later, is at Mount Sinai. And this is the moment where God makes and shapes a people for his mission to bless the world. The law is the terms of this covenant for the people in their relationship with God. God. And I think it's important to note that before we ever hear the content of God's law, we hear the heart for God's law, the point of God's law, to form a holy people, a kingdom of priests for the sake of the world. And I think we as Americans, we, we really struggle with the entire genre, the entire idea of the law. Like, what do we do with it? Is it still binding for us today? Did, what does it have to do with salvation? What, what was the point of this? What is it trying to do? And so before we get to really anything else, as as Really, the rest of Exodus is going to be a huge part of it, walking through the law. I think it's important for us to frame the law. Um, and so I, I want to pull out four things that are, to, that are going to appear about the law. And this is not my ideas. These are taken from theologians Mike Goheen, Mike Williams, uh, Mark Glanville, and a few other people that have really shaped uh, and just high-level theologians uh, in the United States thinking through this. And so I got four things when we think about the law to just help us frame it. Number one, the law is good. The law is good. The law was not seen as a burden to God's people, but a blessing. I want to read part of Psalm 119. That should be on the screen with us starting in verse 10. And This is the psalmist talking about the law. He says this, With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Deal bountifully with your servant, that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. I am a sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times." The law is good. The psalmist says, and the whole of Scripture says the law is good. The law is a delight. It's a comfort. It's a vehicle of freedom, according to Scripture. God does not give us his law to rub our noses in our sin. He gives us the law to lead us into the good life, for the law is good. Number two, if you can go to that list, is the law does not save. It's how God's people respond to salvation. What do I mean? What came first for Israel? The law or salvation? Salvation, right? Like God didn't say, I will save you as long as you obey. Like I'll save you from Egypt. Yeah, I'll get you out of here from this. As long as you obey me, then I'll get you out of here. That's not how the story's gone. God saved his people and then led them to Mount Sinai. The law doesn't save. They already got saved. The law doesn't save. They already got saved. The law has never saved God's people. It has always been about how God's people respond to the God who saves. Church, I want to I reframe the law, because this is not the version of the law that was given to me as, as I grew up in the church. Reframe the law in your mind as God telling his people, I have brought you to myself. Now live into what you are called to be, my treasured possession. Imagine this. God is saying, I have made you my kids, now live into it. Live like it for the world to see. The law is good, one. The law does not save. It's how God's people respond to salvation. And three, the law is missional. The law forms a people to show what human flourishing looks like under the rule and reign of God. You don't have to turn there, but kind of to mash together Exodus 19, 5 and 6 says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God's people are tasked with the identity of bearing God's image to the world. The if you obey is an invitation. It's an invitation into a calling and a mission as a priestly people who will be a light to the nations, drawing the world in with their distinct living from the law. The law is missional. It shapes a distinct people who are set free from the tyranny of idolatry and sin. And it's meant to be a shout to the nations that there is another way for the Lord reigns. And that should sound really familiar to our calling today. Set free from the tyranny of idolatry and sin that we might live distinctly to show that the Lord reigns according to another way. And four, the law shows us God's heart. Every ancient people had a law code. It's not unique to have a law code in ancient culture. Israel's law code is altogether unique, for Yahweh is altogether unique and different and holy. This is the only ancient law code to care for the poor, to have concern for the exile, and to dignify women. Why? Because this is what God is like. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. The law shows the heart of the lawgiver, God. See, God calls his people to love their neighbor as themselves because God is love. God calls them to forsake idols and worship him alone because he doesn't want his people or his world enslaved to idols that cannot save. God loves his people and his world enough to guide and care for them through his law. I said, this is. The law is good. The law doesn't save. It's how people respond to salvation. It's missional. It shows us God's heart. This is a better view of the law, a more whole view. It actually takes in the whole of Scripture when thinking of the law. So why don't we think of the law like this? What's preventing us from really seeing the law like this? And I want to go through a couple quick hits. One, as Americans, we're obsessed with Freedom. And I love America, and I, 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 we went on our honeymoon to Mexico. My wife and I was like, I cannot wait to get back to America. I was on our honeymoon, and I couldn't wait to get back to the United States. I love the United States. But we distort true freedom, and it distorts our view of the law. The law does not e- inhibit freedom. It enables freedom. The law does not inhibit freedom. It enables freedom. What am I talking about? Well, one, let me just give a couple examples. One example would be, uh, picture we lived in a world, in a city, where there were no traffic laws, no traffic laws. So you're gonna get out here uh, and you're gonna drive down Broadway and we can just treat it like the Autobahn. You can just, just go. You're gonna have 90 miles per hour, hundred miles per hour down Broadway, but there's no traffic light. So anybody can just go and do whatever they want. And it's just total chaos. Some of you have been waiting for this moment. You've got your truck looking like it's Mad Max Fury Road and you're ready for this. For me and my Hyundai Sonata, this is not gonna go well for me. It's just not. It it would be total. freedom is not just the absence of rules in that scenario. It's actually traffic lights. I know some of you are like, that sounds a lot like Tucson and our road. Like, uh, there are cities with real traffic lights that are synced properly so that when you drive the speed limit, you can actually go. Uh, Imagine a world and a kingdom where this could take place enables actual freedom and safety in life. If there was none of those laws, there would, no, there would not be freedom in life and joy. We would actually inhibit it. The second one would be, imagine I have an 18-month-old son, and we told him, you are an autonomous, individual human being with rights, and you can just decide whatever you want, we will do. You are your own person. Go. Be free. <laughs> Morbidly, like, he's probably not going to live, right? But like, it—, like, it that is not going to go well for my son. Like, his freedom and joy and life and flourishing and wholeness will take place under the guidance of good, loving parents. Here's the deal. Y'all love Chick-fil-A. <laughs> parents, you love Chick-fil-A. On Broadway, El Con, you know what I'm talking about. Not because they play like mandolin acoustic worship music, which is, what are they doing? <laughs> I'm a worship pastor. I can say, it's just weird. Um, not because of that because of the play place. And your kids, you can just say, go nuts. Like, go in there, close the door. It's like soundproof. They can just scream. It's great while you get down on the glory that is the chicken sandwich. And so the reason you can say to your kids, like, just go nuts in there is because there's walls and because it's, like, boxed in. And you know, if that was open and it was just play place with nothing and it's just Broadway, you'd have your kids, like, stapled to the chair like you're not moving anywhere but again the boundaries the law the framework actually enables freedom within it the same is true of the law like god is for our freedom see biblically freedom is not having no master freedom is having the right master freedom is not autonomy on your own and again americans we struggle with this It's not being under no authority. You are your own authority. You are your own person. Make your own rules. Biblically, that's death. Biblically, that's death and not life. See, Mike Williams says, I think I got a quote up here. True freedom is the right to obey and follow God without hindrance from sin. It is not the law that inhibits freedom and life and joy, but sin. We tracking with that? Also, uh, we think the law is opposed to grace, because we hear some language from Paul, and that's not what he is saying. The giving of the law is grace from God. What do I mean? Israel didn't earn anything. <laughs> they haven't done anything. It's not like they, like, checked a bunch of boxes so that God would give them the law because they earned it, right? Like, they didn't earn the exodus. They didn't earn the deliverance. They didn't earn the covenant relationship with God. They didn't earn their election. They didn't earn the law. This is all grace. This is all a gift from God. The people of God have always been saved by grace through faith. Faith in God, responding to his grace through obedience to his commands. Also, we think the law, again, is is about God like rubbing our noses in our sin. Like, look how bad you are. The law does reveal our sinful nature. The law does show our inability to keep it and thus our need for a Savior. But that is not the first function of the law. That is not the first order of the law. That is not the first uh, calling of the law. We would have law even without sin. For God gives law in Eden do not take from the tree. When you think of the law, do not think of an angry schoolmaster just laying down legislation to, be, to, to modify behavior. Think of a loving father giving good instruction to his kids. The law is not a response to sin. God has always uh, been and he will always forever be, giving his good instruction to his people and to his world. The law's first function, according to John Calvin is to give us fatherly instruction to live and flourish in God's world. That's a, that's a, that's a better view of, that's a more fuller view. That's good news in the lie, amen? That's a different view. It's not just, <laughs> let me create something that you could never accomplish so you can feel really, really bad about who you are. That's not the heart of a good father. <laughs> let me create a test you could never pass to just make you feel small. To sum up so far, you, you could say Exodus 1 through 18 is the conversion of Israel. They got saved. They got delivered. They, they were set free from Egypt to God. Exodus 1920, the rest of the book is this consecration, this covenant of this saved people under God. I got a quote and I love it from a guy named A.J. Swoboda, who's gonna come up in a little bit. The first half of Exodus is getting Israel out of Egypt. The second half of Exodus is getting Egypt out of Israel. Let's say that again. The first half of Exodus is getting Israel out of Egypt, the deliverance, Red Sea out of there. The second half of Exodus is getting Egypt out of Israel. What do I mean? I mean that the law is getting the way of Egypt out of Israel. God is forming a new people. He's forming a new way under a new master according to a new law for his glory and the good of the world. God is getting Egypt out of Israel, and he's getting Egypt out of us as well. So with this framework of the law, I think we can move forward. And we have what Tom uh, read in the scripture, that the Lord descends onto Mount Sinai. And I I was telling Dave, I had this whole like, probably like 15 minutes about like descent and about God's presence. So I'm just going to try to say it in like a minute or two. Just let me nerd out for a minute about what I I think this is important. So you could say when the Lord descends, that idea of the Lord descending on the mountain, his presence coming to his people is what the entire Bible is all about. It's about God's presence moving closer and closer to his people. God is not content with dwelling apart from his people but with his people. We see in the Garden of Eden... Adam and Eve walking with God. They're in communion with God. God's presence is separated from his people because of sin. And we see in Exodus, like the pillar of, uh, of fire and the cloud leading his people, God's presence is coming towards his people. We see here the Lord is descending on Mount Sinai to have communion and give his law to Moses. We see uh, here in the back half of the book, we're going to see the tabernacle. God wants to set up shop and go with his people. We see the temple as they move to Jerusalem. He says, I want to set up a permanent shop of my presence i <laughs> And we see ultimately in Jesus, God saying, I want, I'm going to incarnate. My presence is going to come into my creation. God taking on flesh, fully God, fully man, Jesus, his presence going forward, incarnating. And then when he doesn't stop there, he says, I want to move even closer. I'm going to send my spirit who will not just dwell among you, but will dwell in you. My presence, my new temple will be in the hearts, in the very lives of my people. God keeps moving in and in and in and in, and his presence one day will fill the whole earth and we'll, we'll see at the end of history is we will dwell with God again. Our faith will be made sight, and we have this return back to Eden where we will dwell physically with our God. And and what we see is like this picture of that at Sinai with the Lord delivering, and that's all I have time for on that subject. And there God gives his 10 commandments. So read with me Exodus starting in verse 20, or starting in chapter 20, verse 1. I'm not going to read every single verse, but we're going to get the idea here. And what I want us to do as we read this, and maybe you need to close your eyes to do it, I I want you to imagine these are the words of a loving father giving good instruction to his kids. Try to reframe it as that. In your mind, to hear it as God, your father, giving good instruction to his kids. He says this, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house or covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. So in sum, I got a slide, which is kind of a, a, a bullet points here, the Ten Commandments just to kind of of look at the big picture of these. One, you shall have no other gods before me. This means you shall have no other gods. As the people of God, you shall have no other gods in my presence. For there is no other God. No one can save. I'm the one who brought you out. I'm the one who saved you. I'm the one who has called you. I'm the one who is Lord. You shall have no other gods before me in my presence. Two, you shall make no idols. It doesn't an idol is, is simply a God replacement. Uh, in, in ancient culture, there were statues for us. We're more sophisticated than that. So oftentimes our idols are God replacements. Are good things, we make ultimate things. So they can be relationships. I find my identity and my marriage certificate. I find my identity in my kids. I find my identity in my college degree. I find my identity in the title at my desk at work. I find my identity in my bank statement. There's this reality of when we find our hope and our life in something other than God, it is an idol. And God says, you shall make no idols. They can't save. They can't give you an identity. That's good news. Three, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. We are called to revere the name of God. We're, not, we're called not to blaspheme. Four, we're to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. We are called to rest in God. Called to honor our father and mother, and, and this applies to every age. We don't grow out of that. I'm called to honor my father and mother. Number six, you shall not murder. And again, remember the words of Jesus. If you're familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus ups the ante. It says it's not just about killing somebody. It's about not harboring hatred also in your heart, that obeying the law is a matter of the heart. You shall not commit adultery. Jesus also again ups the ante and says, you shall not look on a woman with with lust. Eight, you shall not steal. Nine, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You're called to not lie. And ten, you shall not covet. Martin Luther famously said, you never break commandments three through ten without first breaking the first two. Why do we steal? Why do we lie? Because something has become more important to us, has more of our allegiance than God. I care enough about my boss's approval, so I'm going to lie on this spreadsheet. I'm just going to tweak it just a little bit. I fear him more than I fear God. I know what God's word says. I'm not called to commit adultery, but if I do this, there's going to be a validation and an identity and a pleasure that I just don't believe that God can give. We're bowing down to another God. We're creating an idol. We never break commandments 3 through 10 without breaking the first two. And also, by keeping these 10, we're, we're taking on the mantle of Jesus who said, you shall love your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's commandments 1 through 3. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, 4 through 10. This idea of like the 10 commandments are filling this way of Jesus. The way of Jesus is found in these ten. Because these Ten Commandments are the basic terms of the covenant with God. It's it's almost impossible to overstate how important these Ten Words are. The Ten Commandments are the foundation of the law, and everything after it is a case study of the Ten Commandments. So as we get into chapter 21, 2, 3, this is a case study of the Ten. So, are the Ten Commandments authoritative for us today? Yes, and to break any of them is sinful. Always been sinful will always be sinful. It's, it's never been okay to murder or commit adultery. There was no law given to Cain and Abel, and God held him guilty for killing his brother. It's always been evil and sinful and wrong to murder and commit adultery, and it will always be wrong to do such things. It will always be sinful to blaspheme and to take the name of the Lord in vain. The Ten Commandments are woven into the fabric of creation itself. You could say the Ten Commandments are the way things are supposed to be. And I, there were so many directions we could go with this, but I I really felt a pastoral, and do feel a pastoral burden to give a charge simply into one of them and to focus on one of them because I think we have neglected it and I think it's killing us. And that's the Sabbath. I think there's confusion with it. And I think it's killing us. I know it's killing me. And I'm going to, that guy, A.J. Swoboda, we talked about, I'm going to just hijack a bunch of his stuff. And um, he wrote a book called Subversive Sabbath. If you struggle with that, I'd read that. Uh, If you don't have time to read it, uh, listen to an interview that Tina Dare and Jim Mullins did on the Faith, Work, and Rest podcast on Subversive Sabbath. It's amazing. It's great. You should listen to it. Because here's the deal. I just want to call it like it is. Church, the stats show in every single domain, we are the most busy, tired, stressed out, nonstop, overwhelmed, overworked generation in human history. The average American works 1,000 more hours a year than 20 years ago. Depression is through the roof. Anxiety is an epidemic. We, we look at our church survey, and like literally it's every other person in the room says they are struggling with this in a deep way. We medicate on caffeine to get us through the chaos. We crash, and we numb ourselves with screens. We, we don't have the capacity to, to connect with another human being, so we just live and consume social media. And we don't rest. And it's killing us. It's killing us. It's an hours a day on our screens. We're entertained, but we're not resting. And God offers and he commands a better way. The entire biblical story can be told as a mission into God's presence, which is into God's rest. His presence leads to rest. We were created to rest. The commandment says, remember the Sabbath. Sabbath is woven into the very essence of creation itself. In the same way, if you take out any other aspect of creation, you take out light, the whole creation falls apart. You take out rest, and the entire thing spirals into chaos. And I think we feel that today because we haven't been resting and we are spiraling we're unraveling we are not experiencing what we were made for there was a time where God's people lived in a perpetual state of restlessness of slavery and we've seen over the last 18 chapters God says you were not made for this and he calls them out of slavery that they might worship him and rest in him we sink deeper into our humanity, into the image of God when we rest. I, I want to define Sabbath. First, I am not. I don't know some of you right now are ready to explode. Like, I am not arguing for a Jewish ceremonial Sabbath from sundown to sundown on Saturday. And if you don't abide by that and you're picking up sticks, we're going to stone you to death. Like, that is not what I'm arguing for. I am a Christian who believes Jesus has fulfilled the law, that he is our rest, but the essence of the spirit of the law abides. We are called to rest in God. If we are not setting aside intentional time to cease working, to cease productivity, and to connect and rest in God, we're we're not just going against God's good fatherly instruction. We're going against the design in which he made us and created us. And we're going against the good life. Sabbath does not just mean like staring at a wall for a whole day and doing nothing. It doesn't mean mere entertainment and just being on our screens. It doesn't mean uh, uh, simply a day off either. Eugene Peterson has written some of the best stuff on Sabbath and he says Sabbath is a dance of praying and playing, of Sabbath being marked by enjoying God, of enjoying God's people and enjoying his creation, resting and Here's the reality, and we just have to call it like it is. We are in a society that worships work and productivity. We measure righteousness in busyness. You are more righteous the more busy you are, the more full your calendar is. And we distribute identity based on utility and usefulness. It's the opposite of the kingdom of God's economics. This is not a safe place to rest. Our society is not a safe place to rest. So we don't. We're afraid of getting passed over and, and, and overlooked, and so we, we answer emails on Saturday morning. We're working Friday night from our phones. We are on call throughout the weekend. We start and end our days. The first thing we do when our phone alarm clock goes off is we scroll. And the last thing we do before our bed, bed is to set the phone down from scrolling. We don't pray. We might say prayers, but we're not praying. We don't have intimate friendship. We have buddies. We don't have communion with God, and it's killing us. And we feel it, if we're honest with ourselves. We feel it. We weren't made for this. I feel it. The restlessness in my soul is eroding me. It's eroding my relationships with my spouse and with my kids and with my friends and with God. There's this restlessness that is just eating away at me. And I have a feeling I'm not the only person in the room that feels that, if we're honest. As been said from the stage, this isn't just in the world, it's in the church. As been said from the stage, as a pastor, I can, if I break the other nine commandments, I'm getting fired. I'm going to jail, <laughs> I murder somebody, I'm going to jail, rightfully so. But it's been said like, if we break the Sabbath, oh, that guy gets stuff done. I like how available he is. Oh, I can count on him. We get a raise. That's not a knock on Dave. He's the biggest advocate of like resting and Sabbath. This is the church, like, not just art, the church. So we don't rest. So I just wanna get super practical on this. I felt so convicted as I dove into this, seeing my own idolatry. Again, breaking the first and second commandment. I don't rest, because I'm afraid if I rest, I will be no longer seen as useful, my identity is going to take a hit. If I'm not scrolling and consuming information, well, then I'm not going to be seen as interesting or I'm not going to be seen as somebody who's got interesting answers for the, the problem at hand. I won't stay up to date with what's happening and that's going to have a knock on who I am so I don't rest. And there's this anxiety just building in us that like we can't stop because if we stop, someone else is going to get the promotion. Someone else is going to get the credit. Someone else is going to get X, Y, and Z. And it's just eroding us. See our own Messiah complex so we don't rest. So my family, we've been talking about this a lot in the last month. Setting up new rhythms. And for us, it's Saturday morning for a few hours. Just no phone, no work. This is a time to focus on each other, to focus on God. This isn't just devotional time like in the morning or something. This is significant set-apart time. This this is time to to go on walks, to get outside, to make sure Kelsey and I get time to pray and to, to, to process and to wrestle and commune with God. It's a rest in Him. This is nothing glamorous, nothing cool, nothing to put on Instagram. Like, it's not impressive. And ultimately, we're committing to creating space as a family to enter God's presence and to experience His rest. And in this, we're declaring as a family that we actually need God. Like, we actually need Him. And as St. Augustine says, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee, and we are tired of being restless we're tired of being anxious. We're tired against going against God's design. I need this, and so do you. Don't do what we're, what we're doing is not important. I don't know what your family actually needs. Uh, what actually is restful for me, with my unique vocation, is going to be different for you to stop your vocation and working. Start somewhere and grow into the rest that God offers and commands. We're tracking. And like, this is what we need, amen? So I want to tie kind of everything we've been talking about together. I want to I apply what we said about the law generally and apply it to the Ten Commandments specifically. Remember, the law is good. It doesn't save. It's how we respond to God's salvation. It shows us God's heart, and it's missional. And I want to focus on that last one because I, I think it's going to help bring alive the law for us in some ways. And so what I want to do so I want to ask a question of, how do the Ten Commandments form us, Redemption Tucson, as a distinct people that functions as a light to the nations, that functions as a light to our city? I want us to delight and see the Ten Commandments as good news. So what I'm going to do is, yeah, we got them up there. I'm going to go in reverse order. And um, I got a disclaimer. I get excited about everything. Everything. And I've been, I'm like, Keeping it together, keeping it But like every time I practice this, I got excited. And I, I get excited. I, I get excited thinking I'm talking about tacos. I get excited talking about the Seahawks. I get excited talking about what hand soap we should. I, it doesn't take much to get me excited. I got opinion on everything. Easy. So I'm going to get excited. I love God. I love his word. I love you. And I love what this could shape us to be. So what if we were a people Who were content with what we had. We're not grasping or coveting for more. We're not insecure due to Instagram feeds and celebrated the blessing of others. What if we were a truthful people who were known as a community who did what they said? Imagine if we were the people known as those who did not lie, would not gossip, and were marked by justice. What if we were known as the people who did not steal, not just from our physical neighbors, but from our global ones? We would not tolerate our personal prosperity and our personal comforts coming at the expense of the weak and the vulnerable and the marginalized. What if we were a people marked by purity, where marriages, singles, men, women, all flourish together? There's no objectification or dehumanizing. Uh, Imagine if we embrace the teaching of Jesus that adultery is the matter of heart. So we didn't tolerate pornography or chauvinism or sexism or lustful thoughts, and we fought against all perverse practices and all of its ugly forms. What if we were people who took on the mantle of Jesus and did not murder in our hearts and did not harbor hatred toward any man, even our enemies? Imagine if our community was known as a place of love regardless of voting record, regardless of skin color, and regardless of socioeconomic status. Imagine if we were a people that were holistically pro life and therefore we stood against just firmly against every instrument of murder and death from the womb to the tomb in our midst in all of life. What if we were a people who honored our fathers and mothers and the generations lived in harmony together? What if we were known as a community where families flourished, where the old were respected, and the elderly were never cast aside but seen as an integral part of our family? What if we were a people who did not neglect the Sabbath? Imagine if we were a people who refused to allow our identity to be found in our work, but we found it in God's work. Imagine if we were a people known for peace and stillness and stability and calm and rest. Imagine if we embodied the way of Jesus' rest, who took on the mantle of Jesus, who says, come to me, all who are weary, and I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Imagine if we were a people marked by this. What if we were people who did all of this distinct living out of reverence for God, who took God seriously but not ourselves? Imagine if we never minimized or trivialized the name of Jesus, but were more concerned with His fame, with His influence, with His dignity, with His reputation, and with His influence than with our own. Do what if? We were a people who did not bend a knee to the idols of our day, but we stood firm against consumerism with generosity and against individualism with sacrificial love. And what if we were the people who worship Jesus alone? Imagine if in word and deed and in all of life, we declared that the gods of power and comfort and greed and sex and technology and education are false gods. They cannot save. They do not have power. And what if our song, with all of our being, for all of our days, was Jesus is Lord? This, this is what we're called to, amen? amen? This is good news, amen. So, in closing, church, praise God Mount Sinai leads to Mount Calvary. The story does not end at Mount Sinai. The people failed to live into this old covenant way. But the good news is that there is a new covenant marked by Jesus' death, resurrection, and outpouring of the Holy Spirit. In this new covenant, our hope, our access to God, our righteousness, is through faith in Jesus. He kept the law perfectly. He died on our behalf. And if we are in Christ, we have his sinless record covering us. This new covenant gives us, through his Holy Spirit, new hearts. And it says that the Spirit of God will write the law on our hearts. He'll give us new desires and new identities and new power to actually walk in the way of the Ten Commandments, to walk in the way of love. Jesus said he fulfilled the law. He didn't say he abolished it. The law always represented the heart of God, which is now seen most clearly in Jesus Jesus says the entire law, the Ten Commandments, all of it is summed up in love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. When we love like this, we're fulfilling the Ten Commandments. We're fulfilling the whole law. It's how we live in Jesus' new covenant. So church, may we be dependent on the Spirit of God for our calling. May we walk in God's good fatherly instruction. May we fulfill the law by embodying Christ's way of love. And may we receive the new covenant identities God gives. May we have the courage to rest in an even deeper Sabbath found in Christ alone. For God's glory, our joy, and the good of the world. Let's pray. God, may we walk in this way. Thank you for fulfilling the law. Thank you for giving us the ability to keep it through the power of your Holy Spirit. God, we need you. We ask for your help. We ask that we would see the law as good, see it as a response to our salvation, that we would see it as what we're called to live missionally in, and we'd see it as your heart. God, would we be a people of the Ten Commandments, and would our city rejoice that it is so? Would we be a people? Would we be individuals? Would our marriages, would our lives, would our vocations, would our very selves be marked by these ten words? Would we love you with all we have? and pour our lives out for others. Imaging you, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen.